Genesis chapter 45, we'll begin reading in verse 1, and we'll stop at verse 15. It says this, Then Joseph could not refrain himself before all them that stood by him. And he, called, and he cried, Cause every man to go out from me. And there stood no man with him, while Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph. Doth my father yet live? And his brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. And Joseph said unto his brethren, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near, and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Now therefore be not grieved, nor angry with yourselves, that ye sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years, in the which there shall neither be earing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth, and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh, and lord of all of his house, and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Haste ye, and go up to my father, and say unto him, Thus saith, thus saith thy son Joseph, God hath made me lord of all of Egypt. Come down unto me, tarry not. And thou shalt dwell in the land of Goshen, and thou shalt be near unto me, thou and thy children and thy children's children and thy flocks and thy herds and all that thou hast. And there will I nourish thee. For yet there are five years of famine, lest thou and thy household and all that thou hast come to poverty. And behold, your eyes see, and the eyes of my brethren Benjamin, that it is my mouth that speaketh unto you. And ye shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt, and all that you have seen. And ye shall haste and bring down my father hither. And he fell down, excuse me, and he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck, and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brethren, and wept upon them. And after that, his brethren talked with him. That'll conclude our reading this morning. That's reading the first 15 verses of the 45th chapter of the book of Genesis. And if the Lord will help me to do so, um, I want to do something perhaps a little different. I want to take a few weeks to preach this message. Um, as I've been studying this, as you no doubt have experienced, you read a story and you see things that you've never seen before and there are certain truths that are impressed upon your own heart that um, were there the whole time but you just did not discern. And that has been the case with the book of Genesis this week and the story of Joseph. And so it's going to take me at least a couple of weeks to get this truth out to you and I, I pray that it, you would see it beneficial as we go through this. Um, the title of our message today, or series of messages today, is Genuine Repentance, a Dying Doctrine of Christianity. Genuine Repentance, 
a dying doctrine of Christianity. Um, now, as I've gone through this throughout the week, um, there is so much that is in my heart from these this story of the book of Joseph, and I can't find in the scriptures a more clear demonstration outside of perhaps Jesus forgiving us of our sins of an example of the process that leads to forgiveness. Um, There are, today, in our title, we said a dying doctrine of Christianity. And there are many of those that we experience now, many things that were once clear to everyone, beliefs, but as has been the case with Satan's deception and with our own clinging to falsehoods, um, it is not that the right words are not spoken, but it's that the meaning of those words change. And those changes have dramatic effect. And then once that change has occurred and it's passed on to a couple of generations, then they inherit things and they never know the original meaning of what God intended. But I read this part of the story to you today because this is the end result that we want to get to. Many of you know the story of Joseph. Many of you know many of the details of the story of Joseph. But I want to emphasize in part this morning, where we're headed. And that is that these men that he is standing amongst his brothers had done him a wrong that is really impossible to express in words. I think sometimes when we read the scriptures and we read these stories and they're familiar to us, we unintentionally trivialize the events and their emotional impact that they had on the people. Because very often details are described to us in one one verse or two verses. And that one or two verses, we think, we don't think into them. We don't place ourselves in a similar situation and, and consider, what if that had been me? Perhaps you have told about an experience in your life and when you were talking to a stranger or somebody else, you just very passively mention a detail when that detail has been a defining event in your entire life. And there's not many days that go by where you don't think about that event and there's not many areas of your life where that event has not impacted you. And as I began to read the story of Joseph this week, and I began to see some of the details that I had missed, the Lord began to bring to my attention certain things where we find Joseph was dramatically impacted, and it actually tells us throughout this narrative. We just have to read further into it. We have to see these details that seem so passing. But Joseph had been done an inestimable wrong. And here we get to the end of that wrong by the very perpetrators that did it to him. And it ended with them embracing one another. Joseph crying so loudly 
that those in Pharaoh's house that he had sent out could hear him weeping and moaning and him embracing his brothers and them crying together and him expressing, I have absolutely nothing against you because I recognize Though it seems like you sent me here, I now know God was in all of this. And so I want us as we go through this story to recognize and to make some perhaps that God would make application in your life. I want you to consider today that there are things that have no doubt in this room transpired of a, how do I want to describe it? traumatic moments in your life. There have been traumatic things that may have occurred to you or to someone that you love and someone that you know. And that trauma has affected and bled into everything. And very often there is a belief of one of two extremes. And number one is this, you just got to get over it. You just got to turn the page Move on and get over it. And there's another false concept that is you need to forgive them for yourself. That you need to look. And that's what the world has done today is that they have tried to place a whole bunch of phony substitutes for biblical repentance and restoration. But let me tell you, God is not naive to the depth of the pain of sin. God sees everything that transpires in this world, all of those emotions and consequences as a result, how deeply they affect the human heart. And God has established in his word a process whereby we can find absolute reconciliation through Christ. And with one another. And to me, the story of Joseph step by step reveals to us the teaching of God's word of how that we can find complete reconciliation with people who have hurt us. Perhaps today you're somebody that's been the, that has been the case with you. And I want to say this, that the biblical process cannot be substituted by what is a modern day apology. To be honest with you, I'm not so sure, and and this is a strong statement, so that's why I'm saying I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure that an apology is altogether biblical. Because most of the time, apologies are very shallow, and they involve words. And having worked around kids and seen the effects of an apology culture where you do something wrong and then you very casually and passive say, hey, I'm sorry for that. It lacks almost all of the necessary qualities that involve repentance that leads to forgiveness. There is no confession of sin. There is no contrition that is required, that Joseph requires of his brother here. There are so many things that we're going to get into that are completely lack in an apology culture. And so let me say this from the beginning. An apology is not the same as repentance. Not even close. And I think that has bled into religion and Christianity. That's why it is a, a I call it a dying doctrine here because 
What people basically do in our modern culture, even to be saved, is they give God a passive apology. Hey, God, I kind of know that I'm a sinner because the Bible says so, because the preacher said so, because sometimes I feel bad. I'm really sorry for what I've done. Now I'll accept your forgiveness. That same mentality is perhaps been adopted because it has been adopted in our homes, in our relationships to a degree that is extensively damaging to the doctrine of true repentance. But when someone has truly repented, there is a noticeable fruit associated with genuine repentance. And I think in this story, it is illustrated. I'll say this. I'm going to try if the Lord will help me to do so. And, and, and perhaps, perhaps part of where this was instigated, I don't know if this is the case or not. There were a number of things as I was studying the scripture that came to mind. But I received a phone call this week from a brother who was really having a, a struggle with something going on in his church. And, and it involved... Someone who came and gave an apology to the church. And essentially, it was kind of a laughable apology. This person had done some pretty significant immoralities. They came before the church and very casually said, you know, I've done some things I shouldn't have do. Will you forgive me? And then they left the building And went right back to the lifestyle that evening that they came and asked supposedly forgiveness for. And now the church was feeling this pressure to, what do we do about his apology? He did come and apologize. And this brother was in a, felt like he was in a a difficult place with what to do about it. And I just very, I guess, bluntly said, well, you don't have to accept his apology because he never really made one. He never really met the biblical qualifications. He never repented of his sin. And actually, in former days, it was not uncommon for churches when people would come up and they would repent, supposedly, and then they would go right back to their sin. The next time, very often, the church would not exclude them for their sin but rather exclude them for a false repentance because what they were standing on is saying this listen repentance has fruit there are things that are included when we are truly repentant of what we are done you will see it in our actions you will see it in our tone of voice you will see it in our words there will be a noticeable change that takes place in a person when they repent It's not going to be something where you have to say, eh, I couldn't tell. Or they did cry a whole lot, thus they must have repented. There's more to the story than that. We're going to try to talk about this story in the book of Genesis in four different stages. The first one is regarding the sin. The second one is regarding the repentance. The third one is the forgiveness And the final and perhaps most important one is the full restoration between two people who are at odds with one another. It's going to take us probably the whole service today to talk about the sinful part. Now, 
There are some people in the world that are always surprised when a division occurs within relationships. If you're a young person here today, here's what I want to tell you about the future in your life. There are going to be people who you grow really close to, and you're great friends with them. And then, inevitably, sin is going to get between you. This kid's involved... A spouse, I don't say it can, it will involve a spouse, children, your parents, that person who you say, that's my best friend. We're identical, we're perfectly complementary to one another. There's going to be occasions when, throughout your life, sin is going to get between you. And that sin is going to cause a breach in your fellowship. Now, I say that to say this, that is an inevitable occurrence, so don't be surprised when it happens. There are times when Satan can embellish in our mind the goodness of other people, and we meet someone, or we begin a relationship with someone, and we place them on this high pedestal, or perhaps as you're coming into adulthood, what you're going to quickly realize is that those adults from whom their sins largely are hidden from you, you're going to get adult eyes, you're going to begin to be more informed about things that take place within a person's life, and you're going to begin to see a person more accurately for who they really are. And that can lead to a grave disappointment where you look at the world and you become jaded because what you see everywhere you look is the fact that people sin and Satan can plant seeds in your mind. Why would I ever want to get close to anyone when I know inevitably they're going to disappoint me, there's going to be a breach in our relationship, and I'm going to be dissatisfied with that once desirable relationship. And it is easy to become cynical towards people. It is easy because in our culture we seem obsessed with accentuating people's flaws and downfalls and allowing their faults to define them and thus justifying us separating from those people. But listen, if every person who sins against you, you are determined to separate from, you're going to be a very lonely person. Because the reality is, everybody in this world is going to disappoint. And that is one of the tremendous things that separate Jesus from everybody else. Is that when, whenever God's people say, especially those that are older say, he has never let me down. That is a powerful statement because the reality tucked into that comment is, everyone else has, but he hasn't. And so there are some people that it seems as though they walk around and they look for things wrong with people. And their conversation is filled with everything wrong with the world. All the while, Jesus points out to us, completely oblivious to the one type of sin they can control, and that is their own. And so the first thing we want to say is that before restoration has to, can begin... Sin must occur. And sin is part of the brokenness of this world. And let me tell you that the more that you consider it and the more that life you experience the different things in life, the more disappointing that the sins of your own and the sins of other people will disappoint you. It is just, it's a terrible thing that things can be running so smoothly 
And then sin gets involved. And yet, I'm always surprised by my own naivety. Because it's as though I expected it not to happen. When the reality is I should some, to some degree expect it's going to happen. However, lest we be depressed with that reality, let us be assured that there is a more powerful thing that God has given us to overcome even the consequences and pain of sin. Here we learn this story of Joseph, his brothers. And before we get to his brother's sins and what led to this, let's get to what preceded his brother's sins. Because I think that's important in understanding the storyline. So he has a brother, excuse me, they have a father named Jacob. Jacob is the son of Isaac. Isaac is the son of Abraham. So this is the fourth generation from Abraham. Jacob, his father, excuse me, Joseph's father, early in life is a deceiver in some ways. He's called a supplanter. We talked about that not just this last Sunday. He was known for that, but after he has that experience we talked about at Peniel from last week, he really changes quite drastically. And he begins a man that begins to seek to do God's will. Yet, there are some things that Jacob gets wrong. One of Jacob's biggest wrongs is that he, is, he has preferences. And those preferences usurp God's command. Specifically, he has preferences amongst his family. Now, as the practice of polygamy was normal at this time, he has two wives and he takes both of their servants and has children with both of those servants. So he has four women in which he has children through. And yet, even at the very beginning, when he goes to Laban and he is trying to find himself a wife, he gives him both of his daughters. And amongst those two daughters, he has a favorite. Her name is Rachel. Now, I think that alone demonstrates in part why polygamy is not a good idea. Is because when you yoke yourself to more than one, you're going to have a preference. Or in Jesus' words later on when it's talking about God being first. He says you can't have two, two gods. You can't serve God and you can't serve money. You've got to have one because you'll prefer the one above the other. It's natural in human beings when we connect to something that we have preferences. And so the first mistake that he makes is he gets married to these multiple women and then he starts to prefer one. And God sees that and God closes up her womb and allows Leah to have many children. And that creates a tension in their home. Fast forward a little bit and God allows Rachel to have children. And because she was his favorite, guess what? Joseph becomes the favorite. Now, he he gets to be 17 years old, Joseph does, and it becomes very clear, and we'll go ahead and read the scripture to you. In the book of Genesis chapter 37, it says this in verse 3, now Israel, speaking of Jacob, loved Joseph more than all of his children because he was the son of his old age and he made him a coat of many colors. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all of his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. 
So we see here, first, he has a preference that's sinful. Then the second thing is this. He acts on it. And he begins to cultivate his relationship and gift Joseph with things to distinguish him amongst the rest. Now, what he doesn't realize is that by doing this, he is sowing tons of discord within his own family. And it is going to come back in a major way, both to hurt him and all of his children and even his grandchildren. He has a preference. 17 years old. This all comes to a head, as they say. And bitterness and anger begin to rise up in his brothers to a almost uncontrollable point. I said almost. Almost uncontrollable. And this is an important detail because what led to Jacob, or excuse me, Jacob's sons sinning against him? Well, there was a context there, and it was a complicated context, and it would be very easy in this particular occasion, later on when they begin to repent of their sins, to point back and say, you know, none of this would have happened if my father Jacob would not have done these things. And that is the exact route that our modern culture has taken when we begin to sin, is that we look for the source of our own sin and and, and the decisions of other people. And very often today what takes place is that all the things in my life are a result of what my parents did or did not do when they were raising me. And you will be welcomed with open arms and people will let you talk for hours and hours and reaffirm you as to the reason why you're sinning and the reason why your life is the way it is is because of the mistakes or the sins of other people. And I want to pause for a minute and say this. Your sin is not a result of anyone else but you. You choose to sin. I choose to sin. And there are, there's no shortage of people whose intent is to just know the dirt and the, the, the grime going on in your family and in your life because sin is fascinating to us. We love to hear about the family dynamics and the anger and the, and the little details that take place. It gives us some source of gratification. And I don't understand altogether why, but there is a desire to know the details of other people's life. And as long as you will keep blaming your sin on somebody else and including all the details of what everything has transpired, you will have somebody willing to reaffirm you so they can just hear more and more of that dirty story. But sometimes you got to consider the source. The source of the person affirming you. Let me say this if you're a young person. If you go to your best friend who's 15 years old and you begin to tell them all these things, do you really think they're equipped to help you navigate the complexities of this life? Of course not. So let me tell you something really succinctly. Stop it. Don't do it. As much as you get along with your friends in high school, as much as you get along with your friends in college, as much as you get along with those people who are newly married, they are not at all equipped to help you through the complexities that sin proposes in our lives and in our relationships. They're not. Don't go to somebody who is spiritually immature. 
We all know those people who will tell us what we want to hear. You have them in your life. I have them in my life. I've always been fascinated by the fact that Abraham Lincoln came out and said that all the people that he put in his cabinet were his opponents. Why? Because he did not want a yes, sir. He wanted people who would speak the truth. And because of that, he was able to successfully, to some degree, navigate a rather complex situation that had built up over hundreds of years, in part not only because of the providence of God, but because a a string of counselors around him were much more concerned about truth and right than just being a part of the seat of power. You see, whenever we're putting people around us, we need to make sure they're people who will speak the truth to us. They could have easily blamed Jacob, all the decisions that he made. But what we learn later when they truly repented is that never even comes up. And I think that's the sign, one of the signs of true repentance we might get into in the next week or two. Here, what preceded it was that it came from a really bad situation. And yet, again, let's be clear. Those brothers acted from their own sin. Not too long ago, I was counseling somebody, and there was a wedge that came between them and their spouse. And it was a significant one, a very significant one. And when he came, I was so encouraged by the way that he came. In tears, he said, It's me. It's all me. And he began to confess without the shades of making it look less bad. He wasn't trying to to keep looking good before people. He wasn't coming in a dignified fashion and saying, yes, I did sin, but there's a context to it. Yes, I did sin, but she contributed to it because of this. There was none of that. You know what it was? I own what I have done. Unequivocally, I have done the wrong. Well, you know what? You dig into the situation a little bit, and it wasn't just him. There was more to it than that. But he recognized all I can control is my own sin. And I'm not blaming anybody for what I did. I would say that step right there is almost never met when people seek forgiveness and reconciliation. Almost never. There's almost always, what do they say on like an insurance policy, you put a writer on it, you know, something, just a tag on the end of it. Often, people nullify all of their confession by the writer they put at the very end. It usually says something like, but I did that because... And then there's some justification. Listen, the, the sound of repentance does not have even the lingering doubt of self-justification. Not at all. It does not add a little writer. Repentance takes full responsibility for what a person has done. They came out of that bad situation that no doubt explains some of their feelings. So here's what happens. The situation and circumstance happens, Right? All of us can understand if there are situations that have arisen in our life. And the result of this injustice 
is that it flames deep emotions. Now, I heard a sermon one time when I was a kid. We were riding to church, and this is the only thing I remember about the sermon, and it stuck with me as a kid. And it's, it's such a little corny thing to remember, but it stuck with me for 25 years, and so I'm sure there's a reason for it. The preacher was preaching about anger. And he said this, anger is one letter away from danger. And I thought, hmm. Stuck with me all these years. And in the moments when I am in my heightened form of anger, that comes to my mind. Anger is just one letter away. And it's just one step away from danger. Anger in and of itself is not a sinful thing. But what God knows and reveals in his word is that most of the time, people, we, are unable to harness and control that powerful emotion within us. And so it's a danger to us. Because normally where anger leads to, inevitably, is sin. But let me extrapolate it a little further. Anger is a powerful emotion that you feel. But there are many others that seem similar to anger, but are slight resentment. Resentment's different than anger. Anger is an impulsive thing that rises up. It boils up within us. Resentment is a lingering thing. It's built into the inner framework of who we become. And it's always there. We're resentful of something. We don't allow that powerful emotion to flood us all the time, but it begins to slowly seep into various areas of our life, and we remember it. We remember the anger and we say, you know what? I'm going to squelch it, but I'm going to allow the flame to continue to exist. Here, these brothers allow their circumstance. Now listen, when we get in a circumstance like they were in, it usually causes us to run, right? You want to go do something. You want to get angry. You want to run. And there's nothing wrong with running, but it depends on where you run. So if somebody's sin is setting you ablaze. The question you've got to ask yourself is, where am I trying to run to? And most of the time, our temptation is to run to sin. Here, his brothers get really angry. They could have done a number of things. They could have run to their father. And they could have said, Father... All of these years, we've been able to discern your favoritism towards our brother. All of these years, we have sensed that you love Rachel, his mother, more than you love ours. And it is tearing us apart. And you know, that instruction Jesus later gives to us in the New Testament, that when a brother has committed an ought against us, it is our responsibility as the one who has been wronged to go to that person and seek reconciliation. Very often what a person will do and what Satan will encourage is that if that person wronged me, I'm going to wait for them to make it right. And there's certainly instruction in the Bible for that. Matthew chapter 6 tells us, or or chapter 5, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount said, if you go to the altar and you're offering your gift to the altar and you remember that you have done something wrong to your brother, first go and restore your brother what he has done and then come and offer your gift. So on one occasion, Jesus teaches us that if you are somebody who has wronged somebody, you as the offender go to that person. 
But on the flip side, he tells the opposite person to do that in Matthew 18. He says, if your brother trespass against you, go to him on your own. And try to work out the problem. Now, here's why I think a lot of people don't do that. Because most of the time, the brother they are going back to is too immature to receive it. So let's say I came to you. And you had done something and it bothered me. And I said, you know, I don't know that your intent, I don't think it was malicious. But there's a certain thing that you do. And it's a stumbling block to me. I'm having a hard time. You know you have those things just like I do. That you begin to pray, you begin to study, you begin to try to worship in the house of God. And a stumbling block comes before you. Maybe it goes something like this. You know, one time this person in church said something to me about my testimonies. That I talk too much. Or they implied through a joke that I talk too much. And ever since they planted that seed, the last 10 years, any time that I feel a compulsion from the Spirit to get up and to testify, I hesitate because I go back to perhaps what this person is thinking. And then I'm that person that's stumbling over that stumbling block, and I come and I say, Brother Ron, I used you last week. I'll use you again this week, okay? I come to Brother Ron. I say, Brother Ron, I know this is so silly, but you probably don't even remember it. But 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you said something, and it's really eating away at me. And it is a real stumbling block to my service of God. Now, I want to say, that is not a stretch whatsoever, what I'm talking about this morning. I've heard young ladies, let me repeat that. I have heard older women say that one time in middle school, a boy said something about the girl's appearance. And now the woman is married and has children and is 50 years old. But that still haunts them. That little adolescent comment from a little boy who doesn't know nothing about nothing. You see, because what Satan wants to do is he wants to gnaw at those areas of your life where you are weak so that he can cast a stumbling block before you so that you feel prohibited from truly serving God with freedom. And then he reasons this. Well, if you go to Brother Ron, he's going to get defensive. He's going to argue you. He's going to say he didn't mean it. And we, we just don't, ever since then, I just stay away from him. It's okay to run when somebody sinned against you, but where you run matters greatly. Because that case, you're running away from reconciliation. You're running away from fellowship with a, a brother who God has placed you together as part of one body. And so how are we as a church going to be able to function under the authority of our head commissioning us when I am actively avoiding working with Brother Ron because of one comment years ago that he made. You see, what his brothers initially did that was very wrong is rather than running to, ran away. Let me say this. What do we usually run to? Uh, scripture, it came to my mind. One of my 
I don't want to say one of my favorite scriptures, but for some reason this scripture has always stuck out in my mind. It's in the book of Ephesians chapter 4. And it's a fascinating verse if you read the whole, really if you see it within the context of the verse, almost everything in chapter 4 through chapter 6, there's this great emphasis on communication, which is really crucial for marriage, by the way. A lot of counseling, whenever you're having problems in marriage, it comes right from Ephesians chapter 4 through verse six, chapter 6, because it's so much about clear communication. And most of the time, what I have found when people are at odds against one another, in a case like I just brought up with Brother Ron, it is a lack of communication. It's a misunderstanding. And almost always, by the offended party going to that person, and that person being receptive and humble and saying, I'll hear you out, and if I did it wrong, I am truly repentant. I don't want to be a stumbling block to you. I want your walk with God to be free of any stumbling blocks. And if I have participated in that, God, please forgive me. Here, it says this. You know, it's it's interesting here that in this scripture, it talks about grieving the Holy Spirit. Now, when we often hear about grieving the Holy Spirit in church, usually people think of, well, the, the Spirit of God was telling you to say something and you didn't say it. It's not really what grieving the Holy Spirit means. It actually means the complete opposite. Grieving the Holy Spirit is not refusing to say something when you should. It's saying something when you shouldn't say something. Look what it says here in book of Ephesians chapter 4. It's talking about the fruits of repentance and, and walking as a new man in your salvation. Here's what it says. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying or building somebody up that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Now listen to verse 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, be put away from you with all malice. Now notice what he's saying here. Now let's go back and interpret this verse in the context of what took place in Joseph's story. Here the father has shown favoritism and it's been terrible over the course of decades. And it is creating deep resentment in the heart of these children. In so much that they are driven to murder their brother. That's how deeply the hatred and resentment is. Now you say, that's crazy. I don't think so. I think it's quite normal actually. You and I have always all experienced that situation where we remain mute whenever there is a wrong being done to us and we don't say a word and it continues and the abuse continues and it continues. And then all of a sudden you just explode and you say things that you regret and you hurt people and you retaliate and you act in ways completely contrary to your character. See, that's what's going on here in the story of Jacob, except that his boys are not matured Christians. They're adolescent young boys. And they have this deep anger that builds up. And rather than seeking reconciliation, they cultivate bitterness, wrath. Wrath is like a seasoned anger. Like an intensified anger. Anger Now, notice this, four of those things, excuse me, five out of the six of those descriptions are things that go on inside, they're not things that come out. Bitterness, wrath, anger, and malice are all things that happen on the inside. And so listen to what Paul is writing here to this this church. He's saying, don't let these feelings 
of bitterness and malice and anger build up inside of you. Now, what does he prescribe? Notice he also says evil speaking. Let me tell you one of the tragic realities of today. We think if a person is confidential, that that gives us the right to say anything to that person because they're confidential. So take your spouse, for example. I trust my wife completely. If I say, Kathleen, don't tell anybody, I have no doubt that it's going to be in the vault. She's not going to say a word. And because I feel that way, it's as though my sinful human nature then proposes to me this concept. Well, then every sinful anger, every sinful feeling you have, you have permission to sh- every bad thought about a person that you have. You have permission to share it with that because it's not going to go anywhere. That's not true. That's not true. What we need to do is kill that temptation at its root by muzzling the oxygen that we give to it. You know what oxygen is to those feelings? Talking about it. If I have an ought against somebody, and I know it's silly, and it's minor, and it's one that I even, I won't get into this, but I should cover in love. You know, it's a petty annoyance. It's It's maybe a certain habit that they have that just irritates me, but it's nothing significant. Do you, you know how to kill that? Stop talking about it. The more you talk about it, the more oxygen you give it to, to live. And the more it lives, the more it's going to spread into your heart and into your mind towards that person. One of the ways that Satan gives us comfort is we talk to these people we trust about it. And we think, you know, if I share these things with this person, it's okay. No, it's not. Here, Paul is addressing this, and he goes on to verse 32, and then he tells us what to do instead of that. He says this, And be you kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. So you see what he does here? He says, here's what you do when somebody has wronged you. Rather than bottling it up and speaking evil to the people right next to you about that person, set that aside. Put that away is the way he words it. Don't do that. I want to pause here for a minute and repeat exactly what he said. Don't do that. Don't talk bad about people behind closed doors. Don't do it. Why? Because it's damaging to them. It's damaging to you. It's damaging to the person you're talking to. And foremost, it's a sin against God. But rather, he tells us what to do as a substitute. Be ye kind hearted to one another. How's he worded? And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted. So rather than looking at that person as an object to despise and talk about, be like Jesus is towards us, right? Whenever you sin, do you think Jesus says, okay, which whip am I going to use today? I'm really going to make them hurt this time. Or, hey, I'm going to go make sure that the whole world knows about the wrong that this person has done and how it's been repeated over and over and over and how they apologize to me, but then they go right back to it. I'm just going to go spread that all over and make sure people know about it. God doesn't do that. When a person comes to him in heartfelt repentance, what does God do? Is he not tender with them in the same way that when the prodigal son came back to his father... 
His father did not lecture and berate and beat him. But he welcomed him. That same spirit is what ought to overcome us whenever somebody has wronged us. God, help me to be tender-hearted and kind like you to those who wrong me. I mean, is there any end to what Jesus did, even hanging on a cross and saying, Father, forgive them. Not spite them, not punish them, but forgive them. You see, Jacob's brothers, they ran away from their father, they ran away from Joseph and they got out in this, sheep, this, this shepherd, this, uh, this pasture by themselves. And you know what they started doing out there? They started talking about it. They started talking about the wrong that Joseph had done. And finally one says, hey, here he comes right now. Let's just kill him. You know, it's amazing the boldness that we have when we have the support of somebody else. Like, isn't that amazing? At first, what begins to, you know, you know, this is a thought I shouldn't have and it's sinful. And then somebody affirms that thought and all of a sudden, you get a little more bold. So, yeah, I am right. I'm justified in feeling this. Maybe, maybe I should just act on it. I've seen many marriages. I don't want to say many, I've seen a few marriages where that was the case. A person goes to their best friend. They begin to talk about how the struggle's going on in their marriage. And their friend reaffirms, you need to get away from him. You need to run. He's just ruining your happiness. And all of a sudden, what began as a lingering thought now becomes a principal action they're determined to take because one or two people affirmed the wrong. Jacob Excuse me, Jacob's sons. They, rather than going and being kind and tenderhearted, rather than confronting the sin of those that were sinning against them, they get themselves in a situation where it's only going to lead to more sin. And listen, that, I want to say this and I'm going to be done. They end up, one of his brothers intercedes and says, okay, let's not kill him. Let's throw him in a pit. Reuben, the oldest, says, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him into a pit. And so they agree to do that. They take his coat from him. They rip it up. They put blood on it. Judah says, hey, here's some Ishmaelites that come. Let's sell him. Let's do this. Now, here's the last thing I'm going to say about the sin, because next week I want to talk about the consequences and the pain of this sin. But here's one thing I want to give you a little foresight. Did they have any idea when they were about to perform this sin how damaging it was going to be to all people involved. They had no idea. You know what I have found when I've talked to people who were on the brink of committing awful sin is that Satan has blinded their minds from the full-fledged consequences everyone is going to experience. And let me say this. If you have an ought against somebody, if somebody has an ought against you and you know it, and there is bad blood between the two of you, and it has never fully been repented of and put to rest, you presently do not see all the damage that is occurring from your sin. They sold him off into into Egypt, and guess what? They didn't see all what was about to transpire, all the pain, 
all the hurt. And, and we're going to get into in a few weeks how deep that the Bible reveals, even in so much. You go up and look this week. Go look up what his two children's name, names mean, Joseph's children, Ephraim and Manasseh. You know what their names are reflective of? The painful experience he went through. They had no idea what they were about to do and the long-reaching impact it was going to have on all the people involved. And when we persist in sin and refuse to go about the biblical method of putting that sin to getting full restoration and forgiveness... We have no idea the extent of damage we are doing to God, to his cause, and to all the people involved in that sin. And so I would plead with you, plead with you at the end of this message to consider what are the stumbling blocks lying in your way from worshiping God with freedom? Whom is the source of those things? And where are you going to run to with the resentment you feel? What are you going to do with it? Are you going to bury it for years? Because we're going to see over these next few weeks a, a contrast between the way that his brothers deal with it and the way that Joseph deals with it. And listen, Joseph went through much more trauma than what his brothers did, not being the preferred son. I mean, the amount of trauma, and that's one of the things that God has placed in my heart uh, over these next couple of weeks. When you go through trauma, how do you deal with that trauma that you go through? Because what occurs most of the time is that people do what these brothers did. They allow their emotions to justify the path towards feeling better. And that is the wrong way to take. I'll give you one example and I'm done. Almost every day I don't follow my emotions in one act and you do the same. And it's one of the most important acts that I do every single day that allows me to do everything else. And if I didn't do this, I would not be able to live my life the way I'm living it. And that is this, waking up in the morning. Every morning when I wake up, you know what my feelings tell me? Stay in bed. Don't get up. And the earlier it is, the harder it is. But you know what almost every day you do when you don't want to? You ignore your emotions because you know you need to do what's right. Why? Because you have responsibility towards others. And towards God. And that the only way you can fulfill your responsibility is by ignoring your emotions and getting up when you don't feel like it. Silly example, but indicative of the warped sense that people have given today that if you don't feel like it, don't do it. Or if you feel like it, just follow your feeling. No. There ought to be plenty of people where you can say, I didn't want to forgive them. I didn't feel like it. Well, feeling's not a, rather, forgiveness isn't a feeling. It's not what forgiveness is. This this morning, I know this message has been a little different, but I've just felt a strong burden to bring this before you today. Repentance. The first 
step to having full fellowship as his brothers found is that sin must occur. And then we must have a response to that sin. This morning, I hope over these next couple weeks, God will give you a heightened awareness to how avoidant you are when there are aughts between you and other people. I know that God has to do that, and I pray that he would through some of these messages these next couple of weeks. Somebody have something on your heart this morning, something you feel inclined to say or to do today.